You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. introduction. We're delighted to have as our presenters UW-Madison's own Yoshiko Herrera and Andrew Kidd, professors in the Department of Political Science. Professor Herrera is a past director of CRECA. She conducts research and teaches courses on U.S.-Russian relations, politics in Eurasia, and social identities. And Professor Kidd conducts research on armed conflict, conflict resolution, and foreign policy and teaches on topics such as nuclear weapons and uh, nuclear weapons and politics and international relations theories. And their presentation today is titled Misremembrance of Things Past, Cooperation Between the U.S. and Russia Despite Conflicting Narratives. So please welcome Professors Herrera and Kidd. Well, thank you, Jennifer, and thank you all for coming out. Uh, We're going to have a joint presentation I'm going to start off. Um, today I couldn't help focusing a lot on headlines. Um, our paper is about conflicting narratives of the past, about when states disagree about what happened and the implications for cooperation. And you might have seen in the New York Times there was a Russian double agent living in the UK. He died, uh, or he's sorry, he's not dead. He's in a coma along with his daughter, and a nerve agent said to be from Russia is to blame. Um, Trump administration also coincidentally today issued sanctions for US for cyber attacks from Russia going back to 2017. Um, and meanwhile, if you look at Russia Today or any of the main newspapers in Russia, you see a different um, story um, where the UK expelled uh, Russian diplomats. Lavrov has planned, pro- promised that Russia is going to do the same. Um, others in Russia are saying they have no idea where this nerve agent came from. And if the UK would only release the information and give them the information, then a full and fair investigation could be done. But the UK is not doing that, which suggests that they don't want a full and fair investigation, etc. It's just the latest in a back and forth. Um, but this time, not just a back and forth between the U.S. and Russia, but or Europe and Russia, or Ukraine and Russia, but in this case, the um, the U.K. and Russia. Um, we think, on the one hand, divergence of the uh, perceptions of the past um, are common. There's a lot of cases where, especially after a major conflict, that two sides disagree about what happened. Um, one of the most well-known cases is on the causes of World War I, and um, the di- divergence in this view of what was, this, what was the actual cause of World War I was something that was used um, by Hitler and by others to justify build-up to World War II. Japan and Korea to this day still disagree on atrocities committed in World War II, and if you watched the Olympics, you saw that one of the commentators on NBC was fired the, after the opening ceremonies for misstating Korean views on Japan with regard to World War II. Um, Israeli versus Palestinian narratives on 1948 obviously <coughs> differ, and as I'm going to talk about further later in the talk, um, the U.S. and Russia have very different views on what happened in Ukraine in 2014. So it's not just that we have a disagreement in terms of an outcome, but we disagree fundamentally on even the events that took place as well as um, who is to blame. So divergent perceptions of the past, we argue, are common. In addition, they can be, there's a lot of reason to believe that different states or different groups would have biased views of the past. This can be from in-group, out-group differences that you would expect groups to differ on how they interpret things. And there can also be strategic or elite manipulation of uh, past narratives to benefit one side or the other. So uh, that leads us to expect that there would be differences, but moreover, these differences could be durable, especially if they're connected to 
social identity. So if you take something like the Ukrainian famine, it's not just a disagreement among some Russians and Ukrainians about what happened in the 1930s. It's a constitutive element of Ukrainian identity to consider the uh, famine as a genocide, not just a coincidental, unfortunate thing that happened. Um, similarly, Armenian genocide is taken as a part of Armenian identity to understand that event, and that's different from, say, Turkish views or some other, other views. So the connection to identity makes it even less likely that some of these views will be updated or changed even with new um, information. And even when some groups see that there may be a different way to look at things, there may be benefits to, um, to reconsideration of the past, they can also face backlashes within their own groups, such as in the case of Japan, apologizing for atrocities in World War II would elicit a backlash within Japan. So these are all reasons to think that divergent views of the past are not going away. But this may be just obvious to people. Like, of course, people disagree about the past. Of course, they blame each other. Who cares? Um, an interesting thing is that cooperation theories in international relations tend to ignore this idea that there are conflicting narratives of the past. Why? Um, first, in the qualitative literature, there is an idea that uh, sunshine, light, uh, truth, will lead to reconciliation. You have either um, tribunals, investigations by outside parties, et cetera, and that information um, is shared, and that will lead to two sides understanding what happened, accepting blame, and apologizing, and this apology becomes the basis for, um, for reconciliation. Um, in formal theories of cooperation, it's a more formal, uh, strict, um, view that there has to be agreement on the past. There's very little discussion of divergent narratives and um, what we're going to talk about later is that um, if there is uh, conflict then in order to restart the possibility of cooperation there has to be A, an acknowledgement of what happened and B, some sort of contrition or cost paid um, to, to show that happens. So we think it's not just a matter of the formal theory, but also in the qualitative literature, there is an idea that you get back to cooperation once you talk about what happened, accept it, um, accept responsibility, and, um, and uh, apologize. Um, but if you have different views of what happened, you can't have contrition, you can't have apology, and so that would suggest you can't get back on track for cooperation. So the questions that we are interested in are um, if there are divergent views, is cooperation possible? Because as I said, a lot of the formal cooperation literature says it is not possible. Now you might just say, well, maybe it is, but we're trying to look at the mechanisms under which cooperation could actually return, and in particular for this audience, to look at what this issue of divergent perceptions can say to us about either U.S.-Russia relations, or also Russia's relations with other states, which is a <laughs> could be a pressing problem these days if you're, if uh, from certain perspectives. Okay, so our um, just our brief roadmap of where we're going to go. Andy is going to take over and discuss these existing models of cooperation. Um, our um, new strategy, which has the great name, <laughs> temporary mutual punishment, um, which he'll explain. <laughs> In the later, that's a joke. If you have other suggestions for a name, we are interested. But at the moment, that is the descriptive name for our model, Temporary Mutual Punishment, um, TMP. And um, then we'll talk a little bit after the presentation of those models about how we think TMP can be helpful in understanding both historical cases of reconciliation as well as the current challenges to cooperation with Russia. Uh, okay, so. Um uh, I am sort of uh, responsible for the game theory portion of today's entertainment here. Uh, you may have uh, encountered um, the repeated prisoner's dilemma model. Does that ring a bell? Um, so the standard sort of workforce model of cooperation in international relations and indeed in the social sciences more broadly, I would say, 
is this model called the repeated prisoner's dilemma. Uh, and it's illustrated there. There's two players. Uh, they have the op option to either cooperate with each other or defect, where defect means do something uncooperative or hostile towards the other side. And uh, depending on uh, which uh, strategies the players play, you get one of those four outcomes. Mutual cooperation, uh, mutual defection, uh, or an asymmetrical outcome where one side cooperates and the other side defects. And uh, the typical assumption about the order of preferences over these outcomes is that uh, the following order holds. Uh, T, which is uh, short for the temptation to defect, uh, is better than R. So if the other guy is going to cooperate, you prefer to defect because T is better than R. Um, R is better than P, so mutual cooperation is better than uh, mutual defection, as P is the punishment of mutual defection. Uh, and then P is better than S. S is the sucker's payoff for cooperating when the other guy defects. So if you think the other guy's going to defect, uh, you're going to be in this uh, row, this column, then you prefer to defect too because P is bigger than S. So that ordering defines the prisoner's dilemma. And the nice thing, the interesting thing about that is that they have an incentive to get up here and cooperate because R is better than P. But they have this temptation to exploit the other side if they think the other guy's going to cooperate. And like, if you think two is going to cooperate, you're going to be over here in this column. Then you have the incentive to defect. But of course, both sides have that incentive, so you end up back down here. So the big question is, how can you get mutual cooperation when there is this temptation to defect? Uh, and the usual answer is, uh, but you repeat the game over time. And so you don't just defect, even though you've got a higher payoff, because you know that if you did that in the future, the other guy would punish you, and you would end up being uh, worse off. Uh, so the big question arises, then how should you play the game if the game is repeated over time? And there's lots of different strategies for playing it, rules for uh, playing the game, uh, but one of the most successful and widespread is one called tit for tat, which is a very sort of straightforward strategy. You cooperate in the first round of this game, and then from then on, you do whatever the other side did in the previous round. So if they defect in the previous round, you defect. If they cooperate, you cooperate. You return good for good and ill for ill. Uh, so it's a very straightforward uh, strategy. Uh, Robert Axelrod wrote a whole book in 1984 in which he uh, sang the praises of this strategy. And in particular, said it was, uh, had four, four good characteristics. It was nice, retaliatory, forgiving, and clear. Nice means it's never the first to defect. So it will always cooperate if nobody has defected so far in the game. Uh, and that turns out to be huge. Like strategies that defect first uh, end up shooting themselves in the foot. But it's retaliatory, which means that you can't exploit it. So if you defect against it, it will defect right back against you. So it, it, uh, it really minimizes the incentive to try to take advantage of it. Yet it's forgiving if you cooperate with it, even after some defection, it will go back to cooperation, which is nice. Uh, and it's clear. It's pretty obvious what it's doing. And so you can kind of figure out the, the nature of it. Uh, the problem is, it turns out that tit for tat is vulnerable to uh, certain kinds of noise or accidents, uh, which we're calling implementation errors. Uh, and this is widely understood. So if you think of an implementation error as um, uh, you meant to do something, but it turns out as the other thing. So negative noise would be you meant to cooperate, but it turns out to be a defection uh, instead. So an example might be in the Kosovo War, you know, NATO is going around bombing a bunch of targets associated with the Serbian government, and we bomb this building <coughs> thinking it's another target associated with the Serbian government, but it turns out it's the Chinese embassy. Now that's a defection against the Chinese, but we didn't intend it to be a defection against the Chinese. Uh, we didn't think the Chinese had anything to do with this building. Uh, and so that's an accidental defection. Uh, so that's an example of what we mean by that. Uh, the problem with that, if you have accidental defections like that, is that tit for tat can't handle them uh, very well. So for instance, if you, this is the series of rounds, and these are the choices of the players. If in round one, player one cooperates and player two defects accidentally, um, then in the second round, player one is going to defect because player two defected here. Player two is going to cooperate because player one cooperated here. 
And then in the next round, because player two cooperated, player one would go back to cooperating. But here, player two would go back to defecting because that's what player two did before. And then it would bounce back the other way. Player one will defect, player two will cooperate. And you'll get this alternating cycle of cooperating and defection, all because of this one accidental defection at the beginning of the game. And that will continue on basically until somebody else has an accidental defection, and then you're going to defection for the rest of time. Uh, so tit for tat turns out to be quite vulnerable to these sorts of accidents. Um, so that has led to the investigation of another strategy called contrite tit for tat, or CTFT, which is essentially based on apologies. Uh, so you cooperate in the first move, but then we introduce this notion of standing. Uh, and uh, if you're in good standing, it means you haven't done anything wrong, or at least uh, you've sort of apologized for it. Everybody starts in good standing at the beginning of the game, if you defect while the other guy is in good standing, that's bad, and it puts you in bad standing. Cooperating, if you're in bad standing, puts you back to good standing. And then the behavioral rule is you cooperate unless only the other side is in bad standing, in which case you're allowed to punish them by defecting. So basically, you have this sort of standing variable which tells you what to do, and what you do determines what your standing is. Right? You want to be in good standing, and then uh, uh, you will cooperate, and the other side will cooperate with you. Now, uh, contracted for tat handles uh, basically it short circuits these cycles of retaliation caused by accidental defection. And here you have a slightly more complicated uh, scenario because you've got to keep track of a bunch of different things uh, in each round. But here in round one, let's say player one cooperates, uh, they get a payoff of R, uh, they are in good standing, player two cooperates payoff of R in good standing. Well, let's say that in the second round, there's an accidental defection, the player two defects. So player one gets the payoff of S because they cooperated, so they get the sucker's payoff. Player one's in good standing because they cooperated. Um, player two gets the T payoff because they defected while the other side cooperates. They, were, they um, were in good standing at the beginning of the round, but they transitioned to bad standing. Why? Because they defected when the other guy was in good standing. So in round three, player two is in bad standing. What does that mean? It means that player one gets to deflect against them and punish them uh, without incurring any costs or penalties themselves. So they get uh, the temptation to defect. Player two, in order to get out of bad standing, needs to cooperate. So they cooperate, so they get the sucker's payoff. And then in the next round, they're back to good standing again. Player one never left good standing. And so now everybody's in good standing again. Everybody cooperates, and they get the reward for mutual cooperation, which continues on forever. So what the whole good standing uh, thing does is it enables you to uh, short-circuit these cycles of retaliation by getting back to cooperation, basically because player two says, my bad, I defected, sorry, uh, you know, didn't mean to. I'll let you punish me here for one round, and we'll go back to the way things ought to be, mutual cooperation. Uh, so this strategy, contrite tit for tat, was developed to handle these sorts of implementation error uh, kinds of noise. Um, but um, we are arguing that the kind of noise that we face in international relations and in some other contexts is a bit more involved or complex in a sense than the implementation error when we get to talking about these conflicting narratives, right? Conflicting narratives are a little bit different, right? Uh, they are these genuinely held beliefs that misinterpret or interpret differently uh, the past. Uh, and so people are basically, therefore, um, uh, disagreeing not just over, uh, you know, not, not over sort of, I made a mistake, but they're not willing to acknowledge that they made a mistake, uh, right? So they're going to interpret actions of others as defection when the other side interprets them as cooperation. Uh, they're going to interpret defections as unprovoked rather than as justified. You're not going to have agreement, therefore, on who's in good or bad standing. Uh, and nobody's going to accept any responsibility for um, uh, events in the past and accept any kind of retaliatory punishment. Um, and uh, so we modify the model. Here's where our model gets newer or gets different, uh, sort of innovates over the existing literature. We introduce this possibility, Ada, that one side sees its own act as cooperation, but the other side sees it as a defection. 
and so the acting side receives R, thinking it's cooperation, but the other side receives S, the sucker's payout, because <laughs> they perceive themselves as having been deflected against. You only see your own payoffs, you don't see the other guy's payoffs, you only see your own actions, you don't see the other guy's actions. And so then the question is, well, can trite tit for tat handle implementation error? Does it handle these sorts of differing perceptions? Uh, but unfortunately, it doesn't. So here we get an even more complicated time series of events going on. Uh, but bear with me uh, if I can explain it. So in the first round, everything's great. Um, we have cooperation and cooperation, payoffs of R and payoffs of R. Here we have illustrated your own standing as you perceive it and the adversary's standing as you perceive it. Again, your own standing and your perception of the adversary's standing. Uh, and everything is great. But then, as before, player two defects in this round. Um, and player one cooperates. Player one gets the sucker's payoff. Player two gets the uh, temptation to defect. Uh, but let's say that player two doesn't recognize it as a defection. Uh, they think that they did fine. They think that they're still in good standing when really they're not in good standing because they defected. Uh, or at least that's certainly how the other side perceives it, right? So now we're in round three. Player one thinks that player two is in bad standing. Therefore, they get to defect uh, because it's a justifiable punishment while they remain in good standing. Player two thinks everybody's still in good standing, so they cooperate and they receive the sucker's pail, which is outrageous. They've been punished for no reason because they haven't done anything wrong. So in the next round, they think <coughs> player one is in bad standing and therefore they are allowed, um, they should be defecting here if they think player one's in bad standing. I may need to change that. Um, anyway, the idea is that they think the other side um, uh, is in bad standing and therefore they uh, should be able to defect against it. Um, but this is CTFT. It is CTFT, but therefore they should be um, defecting. I think this table is not quite what it should be. Anyway, <laughs> uh, pay no attention to the table. <laughs> um, the idea is in once you've had the accidental, uh, you've had the divergence of perception, right? There's going to be a disagreement on standing. Player one thinks player two is in bad standing. Player two thinks itself as being in good standing, uh, and therefore player two, uh, player one is going to retaliate um, against player two. Yeah, it's not it's not working right, as, as expected. Anyway, so um, uh, when you think the other guy is in bad standing, but they don't think they're in bad standing, you're going to defect against them. They are going to take that as unjustified punishment because they think of themselves as good standing. Therefore, they're going to retaliate in the next round. But you think that they should have accepted that defection because they were in bad standing. And therefore, their retaliation is perceived by you as an unjustified defection and an aggression. Therefore, you're going to punish it again, and so you're going to get uh, punishment by the other side. Um, if you have the paper, I think the table on the paper is actually right. Um, uh, okay, blame-free strategy. So, um, so contracted for time, it turns out, sets up the same kind of cycles of retaliation that um, uh, tit for tat does in the presence of implementation error. You have these cycles uh, where you think the other side is in bad standing and so you defect against them, that causes them to defect back against you, uh, thinking that you're in bad standing and back and forth. So as a possible antidote to this, we introduce this notion of blame-free strategies, uh, where you have strategies that don't really condition on who did what. Um, uh, that is, you don't sort of retaliate you don't have this notion that the other guy's in bad standing and therefore you should be able to retaliate against them uh, you know, without being punished yourself. Uh, you simply uh, abstain from uh, assigning blame for what happened in the past, conditioning your behavior on what's going on right now, uh, and um, uh, take it from there. Uh, so in a sense, you condition on whether defection happened in the past, uh, for how many rounds there has been defection, uh, things like that. So Grim Trigger, if you know your Prisoner's Lemma related game theory lingo, Grim Trigger is a strategy which uh, is um, you cooperate until anyone at all defects, and then you defect forever. 
Uh, so it's a trigger strategy in the sense that any defection by anybody triggers retaliation. And it's <coughs> particularly grim because the retaliation lasts forever. Um, it's blame-free because it's not conditional on who defects. It's nice and it's retaliatory as all get out. It's quite clear, but it's extremely unforgiving. Uh, and so that's not good. You want to be a little bit more forgiving than that. Uh, and so we introduced temporary mutual punishment. It's not our, we didn't create this strategy. It exists, but uh, we're sort of pointing out a, a good feature of it that has been overlooked hitherto. You cooperate in the first round, and from then on, you cooperate if you receive the R payoff. And note, that's a subjective thing, right? That's not an objective if they defect, because you don't know if they defected. Right? We're abstaining from knowledge about what they actually did. You cooperate if you've received the R payoff in the previous round, or you've received the P payoff for a certain number of consecutive rounds. Right? So the idea is, if you receive the R payoff, everything's cool, you go on to the next round hoping for the best, and you cooperate again. Uh, if not, you enter this punishment phase where you're receiving the P payoff, everybody's punishing each other, for a while, and then you flip back out of that when that's done. So if neither of those conditions hold, you defect. It's blame-free because you're not conditioning behavior on who defected. You don't care whether it's CD or DC, uh, they're treated alike. Uh, but it's much less um, uh, unforgiving than Grim Trigger uh, because it constrains the level of punishment to a few rounds. Okay, let's see if this table works. Um, so this is TMP with divergent perceptions. First round, everything's great. Cooperation, cooperation, R and R. Second round, we have both sides cooperating, uh, but player one perceives a defection, and so they get an S, so they're unhappy. Right? Player two, meanwhile, sort of oblivious to that, thinks they've cooperated and got an R. Uh, but in, player, in round three, then player one is going to say, hey, I got an S, so I'm going to defect now. Um, player two is going to cooperate because they thought everything was fine, so they're going to get an S. Player two's, player one is going to get the T. But they're going to be mad now because they got a defection, which from their view was unprovoked. Um, and so the strategy says, do what? Uh, defect. Uh, because you didn't get C last time, you got the S. And so you defect, in this case, two rounds in a row. You get P twice, and that's the signal, okay, we punished each other enough. We flip back to cooperation, and bingo, you're back to cooperation. So you've short-circuited the cycles of retaliation that would play tip for tot, that would play contrite tip for tot, by basically not caring who started it, by saying, Something bad happened here. I didn't get what I wanted. Um, and now, if I get P indicating mutual punishment for enough rounds, in this case two, that's enough. And then we're going to go back to cooperation. Uh, so it's very uh, forgiving of information uh, problems in that regard. So two aspects just to show you um, uh, sort of uh, going. Uh, we, we did a computer tournament, as people do with these sorts of things. Uh, and we ran um, a bunch of different strategies, 1,000-round tournaments, uh, and looked at the evolution of different strategies in different information environments. And in this information environment, there's a 1% chance of an implementation error, the first kind of noise I talked about, and a 1% chance of a diversion perception, the second <coughs> kind of noise I talked about. And here, you've got a very nice, interesting uh, succession of strategies. Number one is tip for two tats. And tip for two tots is actually a very forgiving strategy. It says, um, I will only retaliate if you attack me twice in a row, but then I won't retaliate. Tip for two tots is great with noise because it is very forgiving of initial noise and doesn't just blow up right away. It doesn't get locked into these cycles of retaliation. Um, and so it becomes more prominent. The vertical axis is what percentage of the population uh, you are, where the idea is the better you do, the more you multiply, and uh, the more of you that kind of strategy uh, exists in the system. But the problem with tip for two tots is that it's vulnerable to sneaky strategies that alternate cooperation and defection. If you're willing to forgive one defection, uh, but not two, then the smart response to that is defect against you every other time, because you'll never retaliate. So there's this strategy I call alternate, which is just that, you defect every other time. Uh, when uh, tip for two tots becomes uh, popular in the system, 
alternate really takes off because it does really well against tip for two tots. And it becomes really dominant in the system, over 80%. Uh, but then alternate doesn't do that well against itself because it's defecting half the time against itself. And that's when TMP basically takes over. So um, tip for tot starts out, alternate then crush, crushes tip for two tots, and then uh, TMP crushes alternate uh, and basically takes over the system and becomes predominant. And then if you look, uh, so you might ask yourself, well, is that just because there's a 1% chance of these errors? What about other uh, chances? And so then we have this table. Uh, oh, there we go. Um, so this table is you know, remarkably interesting. But the basic uh, idea here is uh, on the horizontal axis is the probability of a divergent perception, the second kind of error I talked about. On the vertical axis, we have the probability of an implementation error, the first kind of noise I talked about. And a couple of things about the, and, and the, the entries in the cells are the names of the strategies that end up predominating in that information environment. Uh, and so when you have no chance of any kind of error, it's tit for tat, right? Which is good. That means that Ox Axelrod didn't you know, make any mistakes when he wrote his book, right? That was his information environment, and tit for tat really does well in it. And then if there's some chance of an implementation error, but no chance of a divergent perception, contrite tit for tat wins. And that's also good because that means that Kurt Signorino, when he wrote his article in 96, uh, saying how great contrite tit for tat was, uh, was, was right, uh, because that's his information environment. No chance of diversion perception, a variety of chances of implementation errors. Um, if you are way out here with a high chance of both diversion perceptions and implementation errors, it's grim trigger land. Uh, that means the information environment is so challenging, uh, cooperation is very difficult to sustain, and you might as well just give up on it from the get-go. So Grim Trigger wins out here. Everywhere else is this boring sea of TMP5, uh, which is the five-round version of temporary mutual punishment. So it wasn't just like the information environment I showed you in the previous slide was this one, right? But it's not just here that temporary mutual punishment wins. It's everywhere except for this triangle and this left-hand border. So it actually um, prevails in a whole bunch of different uh, environments. Okay, I will pass it back. Okay. Okay. So, I hope that the theoretical contribution is clear a little bit. The idea is that we're trying to um, think about ways that you can get back to cooperation with these divergent perceptions and without apology. And in addition to um, the formal model and the tournament, uh, we also looked at the historical record in terms of states that had had serious conflict and then returned to cooperation or not, um, following that to see how this model might um, clarify some of the things that have gone on um, in the historical qualitative record. So first, um, we focus on a book called Sorry States. Contrition and International Relations by Jenny Lin. Um, and she, she goes through a number of things in the book. And one is uh, sort of reasonable and um, expected finding that a lack of contrition or a lack of apology will lead to distrust and non-cooperation. And so she discusses at length the case of Japan um, following World War II. And in this case, it's just very consistent with the contrite tit for tat that no apology, no cooperation, okay, that's the end of the story. But also in this book, a big part of the book and a big contribution in the book is to discuss how sometimes cooperation returns even when there's no apology, even when there's no um, contrition. And some of these cases are not exactly what you would expect or you might have forgotten. So French-German relations after World War II, people often think of Germany as the key example of a sorry state, the state that really looked into its past and we're really sorry all these things happened, we pay reparations, etc. But if you look at the historical record, number one, Germany and France returned to pretty close cooperation fairly soon after World War II ended and under a conservative government 
um, and had very little interest in apology, in paying reparations, et cetera. It was only after the SPD, the Social Democrats, came to power later on that they became more interested in you know, revising textbooks, saying sorry, et cetera. So that's the narrative that has stuck with us, that Germany is a very sorry state. But actually, Lynn shows German-French relations returned uh, to very close level of cooperation very closely after World War II before there was very much apologizing. Other cases that we just sort of gloss over <laughs> um, are things like the firebombing of Germany um, by the United States and the UK, or um, firebombing of Tokyo for that matter. Um, these are things that today we would probably think of in terms of war crimes or um, very serious human rights uh, violations. And those happened in the course of World War II. And often people say, well, you know, we were fighting the Nazis, so what, what, what is there to say about that? But um, an issue there is that there isn't the, the return to cooperation, the setting up of NATO, setting up of security alliances, et cetera, does not rely, did not rely on formal apologies by the UK and US um, for those atrocities. The same for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. If you visit those museums there, there's a very careful discussion of why the bombing was necessary in order to end the war, et cetera. Um, Japan, meanwhile, as I already said, did not apologize for um, atrocities in World War II generally. They never apologized to the United States for Pearl Harbor. And yet, uh, the US and Japan have had a very close relationship in the post-war era. So some of the cases of close cooperation, we maybe assume that there was some kind of apology or contrition. But if you look at the timeline of when security agreements um, came into being and um, when cooperation actually started, that cooperation begins before uh, formal apologies. In some cases, the formal apologies um, never come. Now, Lynn discusses a number of factors associated with cooperation. For example, um, a third party threat, or the Cold War in the case of Germany and France. Um, and uh, other, other kinds of things, shared membership in international institutions, democracy, the views of different leaders, different parties. There can be different things that lead um, back to cooperation. But one of her key points is that cooperation resumes, there's a lot of different things going on, but the core reason for the resumed cooperation is not contrition or a clear um, sense of apology. And this is consistent with the TMP model in that the model doesn't really say anything about why cooperation resumes except that it's not because of contrition. It's not because you paid a punishment, uh, you uh, allowed to be punished um, by the other side. It's that both sides faced some punishment for some time and then without really resolving it, they just go back to cooperating. So you can imagine in personal relations kind of agreement to disagree, not really resolving it, just going on with things. Okay, so um, I don't want to, I don't want to take too long on this because maybe a lot of people in the audience already um, know these things, but I just want to go through some of the um, detail on the Ukraine 2014 case where there is now more and more information about what happened and very clearly different views by the US and Russia on um, those events. So you may remember 2013-14, it's like the previous Olympics time. Uh, it was very cold in December. Um, Yanukovych, who you may remember from very past times, was the leader who was kicked out during protests, but he was reelected. Um, and came back to power um, in 2010. In 2013, in the fall of 2013, Yanukovych, who is, a, who is thought to be sympathetic to the Russian position, is supposed to sign an EU, an agreement with the EU. So not an agreement with NATO, but an agreement with the EU, not to join the EU, but an agreement of some kind of cooperation, limited cooperation. And at the last moment, he decided not to sign it in the fall of 2013, which led to a lot of protests in the streets of Kiev that went on for some time. And they uh, resulted in the end with demands for, for Yanukovych to resign. And uh, Yanukovych instead um, 
there's a series of unclear things that happened in mid-February where there are reports that uh, government forces fired on the crowds. There's other claims that it's the other way around. Um, but some people in the crowds are killed. In the end, um, Yanukovych is forced to, um, to leave. He flees the country in the end. Um, and where does he go? He goes to Russia. Um, and what does the United States do? Right away, recognizes the interim government, uh, Yatsenyuk. And um, Joe Biden tells him he has the full support of the United States. Um, John Kerry, Secretary of State then, um, not long after, visits um, with Yanukovych, meets with EU officials. Russia, meantime, is denouncing the events as an illegitimate coup. At the same time, so if you just go back to the, de the dates here, February 21st, February 27th, right around those times, February 28th, men in green uniforms with no insignia, um, the so-called little green men, seize the airport in Crimea. Putin goes on TV and says, um, who knows who those people are? I don't know. They could have got their uniforms anywhere. Um, and meanwhile, the Russian parliament agrees to deploy troops um, by March 1st and March 16th, just four years and the day tomorrow, there's a referendum in Crimea on rejoining Russia. The population of Crimea who are allowed to participate in the vote, supposedly 95.5% of them join, vote to rejoin Russia, and um, Crimea declares independence from Ukraine, and the Russian constitution is amended to add Crimea to the Russian Federation. So I'm, I recognize that people would disagree, many people disagree with this formulation of events, um, but that's kind of our, our point, is that there are very different views on whether the referendum was fair, whether it was free, um, whether there were Russian troops in the area, etc. Um, and so this begins really quite quickly a period, a real decline in U.S.-Russian relations, just almost immediate, starting um, in March 2014. Um, the U.S. declared sanctions um, on Russian officials. Also, there's an outbreak of war in eastern Ukraine, um, which to some extent continues to this day. Um, and meanwhile, you get very different perspectives on, uh, there's just loads of different views that you can look at, but I wanted to show you some of the statements from the United States from Barack Obama's executive order in the first set of sanctions in March 2014. This is the, this is the, there's only um, a couple of executive orders, and if you look at the sanctions legislation, actually, they're incredibly short, just very short executive orders with a press statement by the Treasury Department. In fact, today's statement is a relatively longer, it's maybe one page, a relatively longer statement about sanctions from the Treasury Secretary today. But these ones in 2014 were very, uh, very short. Um, and they target, as it says, the actions and policies of the government of the Russian Federation, the purported annexation of Crimea, the use of force in Ukraine, undermining democratic processes in Ukraine, they constitute an unusual and extraordinary threat to national security and foreign policy of the United States. Um, Russian perspective is very different. Um, instead of uh, accepting virtually anything in that executive order, Putin says, he continues to this day to say that what happened was an anti-constitutional armed coup, that Russia was not behind it, that you know for some reason there were these protesters there, this coup happened, and. Um, Russia had no, um, no interest in that occurring, and they certainly weren't in favor of it. And it's a delusion that Russian troops annexed Crimea. And you know, he goes on to explain what, what Russia's role um, is there. You can see that he's saying, you know, no one, oops, no, one can, um, no one can prevent people from ex these people from exercising a right that's stipulated, blah, blah, blah in the UN Charter. So you can, you can see. Um, difference uh, views there. Um, and, you know, there's more. You can just, <laughs> Putin is the gift that keeps on giving in terms of these <laughs> statements about different differences in views on, on U.S. versus Russian uh, relations. Even today, you can look at the statements about the most recent cases. So there's no U.S. troops abroad while there, there are no Russian troops abroad while U.S. troops are everywhere. And one thing I just want to note is that um, 
that's actually not, that's not really incorrect. There are tons of US troops abroad. Um, the US operates in lots of countries as a continuation of the global war on terror. And aside from the Russian troops in Syria, um, outside of the former Soviet Union, Russia rarely deploys troops, if ever, um, since the end of the Cold War. So it's not that um, we want to say one side is correct or not, or that Putin is always wrong, but just that um, there are very different views on who caused what happened in Ukraine and who is to blame and who's the aggressor, etc. And I think that's very strongly clear from the rhetoric on both sides. Okay. Um, so what we are arguing, which I don't think is that controversial, is that there's different views of what happened and there is not a shared understanding of who's to blame and therefore there is not um, contrition by either side. Um, and moreover, it's very unlikely that either side is going to apologize. Like the New York Times headline yesterday said, was titled, Why Russia Will Never Apologize, dot, dot, dot. So the idea is that we're trying to highlight that this isn't a temporary misunderstanding. This is not the kind of thing that if you have a um, investigation by the UN or some other body to say, like, let's see what really happened, it's very unlikely that either the United States or Russia are going to say, oh, thank you for that information. Now we understand, and now we understand who's, who's to blame. It's very um, improbable that that, that that will occur. So what does that, what does that mean? Um, what we argue TMP adds is that, one, um, I think it's clear that we're, that may be not what TMP adds, that may be clear, um, that we're in a punishment phase where the U.S. and Russia are just foregoing the benefits of cooperation. There's a lot of areas in which they could cooperate, um, which haven't changed over the last few years. Maybe you could add North Korea to the list. Um, but also, as I said, the unilateral apologies and contrition are unlikely. And yet, we're not pessimistic. We're not um, in a grim trigger sort of world where we're saying, because of these defections, because no one is apologizing, we'll never cooperate with Russia again. Rather, this model is saying that there is going to be a punishment phase. It's going to last for a certain amount of time. And then we'll go back to cooperating with Russia without ever having resolved a lot of these historical problems. Now, um, that will be disappointing to some, but the suggestion, the implication of the model is that you could still get cooperation despite this very strong, persistent disagreement about, uh, about the past. Okay, so just to conclude and have time for comments and questions, um, some, some of these points may seem obvious, but I, I, I hope we have showed there's some value to thinking about this that we think it's worthwhile to point out the persistence of divergent, um, exist divergent perceptions, um, which are, on the one hand, taken for granted in a lot of the identity constructivist literature, but not so much appreciated in the formal literature on cooperation, and maybe not as much appreciated in the qualitative literature on truth and reconciliation. Um, and while the idea of contrition and apology, we think, um, has been um, has been uh, a lot of attention has been paid to it in the literature. Um, we think it's worth pointing out that you cannot get to that um, CTFT or that contrite um, apology leads to reconciliation uh, model if you don't have a shared view of the past. So we think it's important to not only point out that these perceptions exist, but that um, that prevents cooperation in the framework of contrite um, tit-for-tat. And then perhaps less, um, less obvious and a bit more controversial point is that um, contrition or apology or shared understanding maybe should not be the focus for reconciliation. So rather than trying to, in the case of Russia, trying to convince Putin to agree on what happened or to apologize, we just agree to live in a punishment phase for some time, and at some point there will be cooperation, but it's not necessarily the case that uh, pressing for apology is going to, um, to be the answer. Um, then the last slide in terms of future work, an obvious question you may have already thought of is, what is needed to get out of the punishment phase? 
what is needed to get two states that are in a punishment phase to just stop punishing each other and resume cooperation. And that's something we don't have an answer to. Um, we think it would be interesting to think about trust and how trust might be incorporated into this model to think about levels of cooperation. If you go back to thinking about the model of just reward, temptation, suckers pay off, et cetera, there isn't a, there isn't a, a, a level of high level reward, low level reward, et cetera. It's just um, reward in terms of the reward, the benefits for cooperation. But you could think of how in a trust-based environment, the cooperation could be deeper, the gains could be greater, so that especially if you were in a punishment phase and you go back to cooperation, um, you know, intuitively you might think that unless you resolve the things in the past, it will never be as good as it could be if you did resolve those issues in the past. But this model just sort of says you go back to cooperation and it's like you were cooperating all the time. It doesn't really take into account how punishment affects um, the level of cooperation in that way. Um, in the identities literature, um, there's a lot about in-group bias, um, but I don't think quite as much about apology or about the um, ways in which social identities affect contrition, per se. There's a lot about why identities lead to certain kinds of in-group, out-group views, but on the issue of apology per se, I think there's less, less there. And then finally, this point about compartmentalization um, probably gets, should get greater attention because um, for a while, for example, it looked like in the case of Syria that the US was ready to compartmentalize the Ukraine episode and just say, okay, we're disagreeing on Ukraine, but the severity of the situation in Syria is such that maybe we should cooperate although that, that too um, fell apart, but the idea that you might have these areas of cooperation or um, non-cooperation is another area that, um, that we think uh, could, could be looked at further. Thank you.